Hey, welcome to After Church Apologetics. I'm Courtney Seacrest here with Dr. Chris Jakeway and Pastor Leo Wilson, and we're inviting you to join us today in uncovering the truths that will challenge, inspire, and expand your perspective on Christianity. So let's get started. Hello, and welcome back to After Church Apologetics. Today, we are asking Chris and Leo, how do we know the Bible hasn't been changed over the years? This is a great question. I, I uh, get asked this quite a bit, but my favorite response is one that uh, Chris told me a story of years ago. Do you remember this story? Why don't you tell it? The one with uh, when you and Sherry went to a Christmas party in Marshall. Yes, uh, it, was a, it was a hospital Christmas party, and I, I didn't know anyone there. And, you know, a lot of times people think that if it's your job to talk in front of groups of people that you always want to be the center of attention or something. And I, I'm not like that at all. If I'm in a room of people where I don't know anybody, I'm just kind of the quiet guy at the side of the room. And I didn't even really want to be there. I Sherry wanted to go and wanted me to come. And, you know, after about 10 minutes, I came up behind her and I said, uh, uh, are you ready to go? She's like, Chris, we just got here, you know, that, that kind of thing. So I'm like, all right, I'm just talking to somebody about the weather or, you know, I don't know, whatever. And across the room, and, you know, sometimes you'll hear, even if you're not trying to eavesdrop on a conversation, you just hear a word or something that just just piques your interest. And across the room, there uh, there was this big sort of coffee table version of a Bible, giant Bible on a table. And I hear this guy say, uh, you know, Christians are stupid or whatever. Everybody knows the Bible has changed over the years. And my first thought was, this party just got good. <laughs> because, uh, and a number of things happened in, in, in just a split second. As soon as he said it, I turned and looked right at the guy. At the same time, Sherry turned and looked right at me. It was like, you can imagine sort of a slow motion, like, no, <laughs> yeah. because I was just, uh, I was just walking right, right toward the guy. I really energized by things like this. And so the first thing I asked him was, uh, if you say that the Bible has changed over the years, the only way you could know that is if you had an unchanged copy that you could compare it to. And, and people don't stop to think about that. Like, how do you know the Bible's changed? You'd have to have a perfect copy in order to make the comparisons. But if you have that perfect copy, then in fact, an unchanged Bible has been preserved. So I asked him, you seemed very confident in your claim, so do you have an unchanged Bible? And he, of course, gave me that look of, not. you know, like I want out. And so, uh, and, and and by the way, and I think this is good in any apologetics uh, discussion, at the point where you can see the person just doesn't have a reply, you know, we don't need like in football late hits and piling on at that point, you know, that's the point to kind of step back and, and uh I said something like, well, this is a really interesting question, isn't it? He said, yeah, and, and we had a good conversation. 
Yeah. People, you know, when you hear things like that, too, to be gentle and show some respect is great. And, but I, I just remembered that just because it is so evident, right? Like that very basic foundation of if you're going to say something's changed, you have to have an original. You have to have two copies at least, an original and then something different in order to say that. So, And, and usually then what people mean by that is we have copies that are different and therefore we assume that a change has been made. And in this case, an area of biblical studies called textual criticism, and it doesn't mean being critical like disagreeing with the Bible, but just a close analysis of the manuscripts is what answers the question here. Uh, and there are two tests we would employ here. One we could call a conservation test where we'd ask how many copies of an ancient text have survived. And the other we'd call uh, a chronology or an age test. How close in date are the copies to the autograph? And by autograph, we mean like the actual piece of paper, say the Apostle Paul wrote the book of Romans on, right? So how many copies do we have? If we talk about the New Testament, for example, and how close are those copies to the original? course the earlier the better right mm -hmm. and um uh, I, I brought a little list here and i'll mention some um facts from some other ancient texts to make a comparison uh the number of copies is also important because yes some of them differ when we compare them it's a good thing that they differ because that means we're considering all the evidence when people try to, to do textual criticism with the Quran, uh, it's difficult because it's a matter of destroying texts that don't agree with others to create the appearance of consistency when it's not really there. So with the New Testament, yes, some ancient texts uh, differ slightly in the wording, but there are so many that that's how we're able to tell what it should be. Yeah, I, I talk to teachers once in a while about this, and <clears throat> just imagine if, if there were no differences, right? Imagine them asking a classroom to do an assignment, and every paper came in exactly the same. No way would the teacher think that was a good thing. She would think that the students copied, that there's only one, you know, one actual copy, that there weren't these different people seeing the same answer from different perspectives and independently. So, yeah, having them all identical doesn't help your case. Well, and, and you can imagine how this test would work. I mean, if you had, say, just 20 people in a room and you wanted to do a little experiment. I've actually done this in classes before, which is kind of interesting, where uh, you write up on the board the equivalent of a couple of paragraphs. And then you ask everyone in the room to make a handwritten copy of what they see on the board. Then you take all those copies, not the autograph, which would be what's on the board, but you take those 20 handwritten copies and give them to someone across the hall. What are the odds that they can perfectly reconstruct the autograph, the original that's on the board without error? And in fact, the odds are quite good. Would somebody make a mistake? Sure, somebody's bound to make a mistake. It's not like all 20 people will be completely flawless in their copy. Uh, some people might even purposely make mistakes. 
you know, there's always that guy <laughs> in class that just wants to mess with it, you know. But for the people across the hall, it would be very easy to look and say, these 19 copies are identical. This one is different. It's not likely that one got it right and 19 were wrong. So it's fairly easy to tell with 20 copies uh, what the text should look like. This is how we're confident that while we don't have the autographs, which I think actually may have been God's intent because the church doesn't have a great track record with relics. Right. <laughs> uh, uh, but while we don't have the autographs, we're completely confident that we have the original text, not autograph piece of paper, but the original wording because there are so many copies. Now, if we only had two copies, like in our experiment, you gave two copies to people across the hall and they're different, you'd have no way of knowing what was right. With three copies, one was different, okay, you'd still go with that, but you'd feel much better if you had 20-some copies. Now, in some ancient texts, like the writings of Pliny the Elder, uh, he wrote in the, the first century, up into the second century, uh, AD 113, the earliest copies we have are from the year 850, like 750 years later, and we only have seven copies. That's not bad, uh, but certainly you'd want more. Uh, the works of Herodotus, uh, ancient Greek historian, he writes in the 5th century BC, the earliest copies we have are from the 9th century AD. That's over a 1,300-year time gap. Uh, we do have 109 copies, which is pretty good, but a 1,350-year time gap is pretty significant. Where are all the people out there saying we can't trust the works of Herodotus because we only have 109 copies? I talk about Plato and philosophy classes, 1,300-year time gap from our earliest copy to the original. We do have 238 uh, uh, copies in that case, so that's a little more impressive. Caesar's Gallic Wars, that's about as good as it gets. We have only a 1,000-year gap and 251 copies. Uh, the only thing that's better than that is the New Testament, where we have, depending on how you date the Gospels, uh, less than a hundred year time gap. Uh, some of these are still controversial, like the model in papyri, sections of the Gospel of Matthew dating to the 70s. Everyone agrees on the Rylands papyrus, a copy of uh, a fragment of the Gospel of John to the year 125. That's just goodness within like 35 years of it being written. So for any ancient text, the time gap is the smallest. In other words, the copies we start getting are less than 100 years after the original. No ancient text beats that. The real impressive number is the amount of extant copies of the Greek New Testament Currently, and I have to change this number every couple of months with new discoveries, 5,856. And here's what's even more significant. Of all those, nearly 6,000 copies of the New Testament, 
they are 99.75% identical. That's very That's important to understand. Uh, right. So this thing of uh, all these differences and it's uh, uh, changed, there's no evidence for that. Yeah, I think one of the things that those numbers, too, when you hear those, you're like, oh, there's a lot of evidence. But also think about what it tells you about people, right, from that time frame. What was important to them? It wasn't their, you know, literature for fun or pleasure or even just history. It was it was the work of God, right? It was the word of God that they thought was significant, and they wanted to preserve it and hold on to it and read it and copy it so it was distributed many places. So there's a, a large significance to them as a culture. I also think that it's important to remember the, the setup there that Chris gave with like the classroom and these numbers of copies, why that's so significant. That, that example of like having the message on the board and then 20 students copying it is, is more realistic and parallel to what we see in history. What I think a lot of people do sometimes they're like, well, but it can't be, it can't be preserved because how about like the telephone game? You know, where you're sitting there and one person tries to pass a message on to another person and then they try to do it. And then by the time it gets there, it started out with saying, you know, Billy really loves the red M&Ms to like, it's silly that we even have red M&Ms, you know, and it, it gets, it just gets translated poorly. And it's just a horrible example because that's not how scripture was preserved and passed on. The telephone game is flawed in so many ways. You're not allowed to ask somebody what they wrote down when in all of these examples with the Gospels, for example, and other ones, they were able to go back and talk to eyewitnesses. They were able to go back and say, hey, what did you write down for that in Matthew? How did you translate that? You know, and like and, and preserve that and have, you know, checks and balances in it. It wasn't like the telephone game. That's a horrible way of defending like that it's inaccurate. And, and with that game, the whole point of it is for the message to get garbled and confused. If it didn't, there'd be no fun to the game, right? Where if we talk about people making copies of scripture, I mean, they did this like their life depended on it. It wasn't uh, a game to them. And that, that figure of 99.75% identical of these in comparing these nearly 6,000 manuscripts, of the remaining 0.25%, one quarter of a percent of the text where there are differences, of that one quarter percent, 75% of those are spelling issues, 24% of that one quarter of a percent are variations that are insignificant just based on word order like one manuscript says Jesus Christ and another one says Christ Jesus in other words uh, a variation but nothing at all that would uh, change the meaning of something like a, a name spelled slightly different one percent of the one quarter of a percent of manuscript variations are things that are going to be of, of interest, but even then don't impact anything... Doctrinal. Right, theologically, exactly. So following up on that, can you kind of explain who decided what made it into the Bible and then who decided that we don't add to it anymore and that it's finished? And, and Courtney's reading this question from somebody. That's not how she would phrase it. Um, and that's one of those examples that we talked about in an earlier episode or earlier questions where... This idea of inside the question is like, well, who decided what was in Scripture? Well, see, that question's kind of 
already assuming like people got to decide what went into scripture rather than like discovered what scripture was, you know, by, by relationships. So Chris, what were some of those categories? I remember four, um, being apostolic, orthodox, Catholic, uh, with the yeah, meaning the, universal, meaning right? universal, and then uh, and then beneficial. So it couldn't be like Paul's grocery list, for example. Yeah, when we talk about canonicity, is our uh, biblical studies term for it? Canon with one end in the middle, not like a giant gun, but the canon is the collection or accepted body of of scripture, right? And so. Every time a new discovery is made, uh, you know, we've seen all these National Geographic specials about the Gospel of Judas and Gospel of Philip. You know, that was the basis of things like the Da Vinci Code and so on. Uh, all kinds of conspiracy theories, who or what determined, you know, what made it into the Bible and what didn't. Now, for the Old Testament, that was already a package deal by the time Christianity started prophets had not spoken for nearly 400 years. Uh, the Catholic Church officially added at the Council of Trent uh, the apocryphal text, so that gets some discussion. But in terms of the Old Testament books, they're already established by uh, the time Christianity begins. And related to our uh, question about preservation, the Dead Sea Scrolls uh, are what are most valuable there. But the four criteria, the four things that a book had to do to make the cut to be included in the Old Testament, and we know what these four are, not by looking at a list of these in the Old Testament itself, but simply by seeing what the Old Testament books have in common. And the apocryphal texts that were rejected lack one, or in many cases, all of those. Uh, the first is simply inspiration, that all of the books in the Old Testament uh, actually claim to be the Word of God. You know, if you look at the beginning of Jeremiah or Zechariah, they always say something like, the Word of the Lord came to the prophet. If it doesn't have those exact terms, there's something else in there like... Uh, you know, God spoke to whoever it is. So they actually claim to be the word of God. Uh, by the way, if you look at in the Apocrypha, and if I'm remembering it right, it's First Maccabees chapter 9, verse 27. It says that there was no prophet found among the people at the time those were written. The Apocryphal books themselves make it clear that they weren't scripture because there hadn't been a prophet since the time of Malachi. Uh, so it doesn't claim inspiration. The second would be uh, content that they had to claim to be consistent with prophetic teaching. Anything that would oppose what a previous uh, prophet writer had uh, written down wouldn't be accepted. Uh, the third would be recognition that they were actually accepted by the Israelites as the word of God, uh, and confirmation that they were authenticated by the power of God. Now, it's pretty similar for the New Testament, but uh, a bit different. The first one you mentioned was apostolicity. Mm -hmm. 
yeah, that being the idea that you had to be related to um, one of the apostles. So, for example, Luke wasn't an apostle himself. Connected but, to somehow. Right, he was connected to um, to Paul and stuff. So, But you had to be within like that time frame um, for being an apostolic. It, right, so we'd say it had to be written in the eyewitness period. And that's also, it's a different question, and maybe we'll get to this on another um, show, but it's also the problem with people calling themselves apostles of Christ today. You can't be an apostle of Christ unless you're 2,000 years old and can raise the dead. Uh, to be in the eyewitness period means you were there on the scene with Jesus in the first century. So for a book to make the cut for the New Testament, it had to be written in that apostolic era, as you said, either directly by an apostle uh, or one closely connected with one. Uh, Mark is closely connected with Peter. Mark, not an apostle, but Peter was. Uh, Luke, not an apostle, but closely connected to Paul. Yeah. In you know, that, that detail that you mentioned about, like, being connected to Apostle in the eyewitness period, why that's so significant is because with that question that Courtney asked in conjunction with these is, is the, is the Scripture closed? You know, is the canon defined for us? And um, if that's one of the criteria for discovering what God was writing to us and there are no Apostles today, which is what we were talking about there, there are not, um, then, then you have to run into this scripture is defined and stuff. If you start doing like what the NAR is, this new apostolic reformation, then they can start sitting there saying, I have a word from God and you're not closing scripture or canon. So that's one of the reasons why that little detail about apostleship is so important. Yeah, I think also the the content uh, would be considered there that it had to be consistent with that teaching, similar to what we mentioned with the uh, with the prophets. And again, if you look at the pseudepigraphal texts, we call them fake writings, in other words, like the Gospel of Mary, the Infancy Gospel of Thomas, Gospel of Judas, they fail all four of these criteria. They were written long after the apostolic period, so there's no way they're they're true in that sense. They oppose content that had already been revealed by real apostles, and they fail the third criteria of recognition. None of them were ever accepted by the churches, so people come along 1,500 years later and tell us we should expect them. Does it make sense? And you mentioned the point about relevance. They had to be spiritually beneficial to all believers. Even if an apostle wrote it, uh, like you said, uh, we know Paul wrote other letters that aren't necessarily canonical. doesn't make them false, but uh, all of those uh, criteria had to be met. I remember you telling me about uh, students in class one time challenging you, saying like, well, they picked stuff that didn't agree with what Scripture said, and your response was, no, duh, that's... Uh, why would you? You wouldn't just invite things in. Yeah, I, I, that's always funny to me when people say things like, you know, in real conspiratorial tones, like, I think they cut stuff out of the Bible just because they disagreed with it. What, exactly. <laughs> Why would you include things that you knew were nonsense? Um, 
I think also when it talks about not um, adding to Scripture, the problem with these new books or, uh, you know, with other kinds of uh, revelation is that Scripture itself forbids it. You know, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, 6, do not go beyond what is written, implying that Scripture is sufficient. But even John, at the end of the book of Revelation, if any man shall add to these things, God shall add unto him the plagues that are written in this book. And, you know, proponents of these extra books to the Bible say, well, John was only speaking of his own book, right, of Revelation. But John was the last apostle to write, and Revelation was the last book written. So he indirectly is speaking of the entire Bible when he says don't add to it. I think it's also interesting that the word translated book there in Revelation 22 is biblos, which is where we get the word, uh, it literally means library. It's where we get the the English word Bible from biblos, uh, which refers to the whole collection of scripture. Not just the letter. Uh, and that makes sense given the way that John opens Revelation. He doesn't refer to his own work as biblos. Rather, that seems to refer to the Bible in general. He starts out by saying, in verse 3, chapter 1, blessed is the one who read the words of this prophecy. That's how he describes his own work. Later, when he says, don't add to this biblos, uh, which we translate, uh, Bible would seem to refer to all of it. Yeah, I, I like Ephesians 2.20 there, where it says, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. And that idea that the foundation is already built with the prophets, Old Testament writing, and then the apostles, New Testament writing. And so it also is defining and limiting as far as like, hey, Scripture here is, is based on these two categories, old and new, and that's the, the boundaries that you run into. Yeah, that's a good point, I think, because if there are still apostles and prophets today and therefore new revelation, according to Ephesians 2.20, that would imply that we don't have a church yet because the foundation's still being built. Yep, it'd always be in flux. Right. Yeah. Thanks for hanging out with us on After Church Apologetics today. To submit a question for a future episode of our show, you can email us at podcast at bcfriends.org. Remember, the pursuit of truth is ongoing, so we'd like to encourage you to continue seeking and engaging with the topics that we've discussed for yourselves. And as we conclude this episode, we want to remind you that respectful dialogue can bridge gaps and build connections. We'll see you next time.